Hi folks, Michael Howey here. It's back to school week around much of the Western world, and that means changes to our schedules and behaviors. While this week we'll be talking about our four-legged family members and how to help them manage this change, I wanted to take a quick moment to remind you that our changing schedules can also impact local wildlife. Please, be safe driving, keep your eyes on the road, and know that our wild neighbors will need time to adjust to the changing schedule too. This is also a great time to subscribe to the Defender Radio podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, and download episodes for your commutes. This week's episode is supported by the Hardy Hooligan. This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of September 4th, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 444 of Defender Radio. Kids are groaning. Parents are cheering, and teachers are refilling hip flasks and chocolate drawers. It's back to school week. While many families will be getting up earlier, shoveling down breakfast, making lunches, and filling up dry erase boards with extracurriculars, appointments, and school events, there's one member of our families who may be having a hard time, and they're on four legs. Family companions, especially dogs, can struggle with sudden changes to routine or schedules. These changes, from simply leaving the house a bit earlier, to members of the family not being around at all during the day, to getting walked or fed at different times, can create stress and anxiety. And those can lead to behavioral problems. Knowing how to recognize those symptoms and what's causing them is difficult. But knowing to whom to turn for help, what questions to ask, and what kind of training will be most effective can be just as hard. That's why Defender Radio reached out to Friend, dog behavior consultant through Fangs But No Fangs, and animal behavior professor Joan Weston to help all of us get ready to go bark to school. But first, a quick word about this week's episode supporter. When I'm looking for a meal that satisfies my hunger and my ethics, I head to the Hardy Hooligan here in Hamilton. They have incredible vegan versions of egg salad, chicken salad, and tuna salad daily as well as savory pies, including my favorite, shepherd's pie pasty. They have amazing desserts and even locally roasted coffee in biodegradable cups. The Hardy Hooligan is definitely food worth rioting for. Check them out at 368 Main West in Hamilton, right by Lock Street, or find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at thehardyhooligan.com. To me, the logical place to start is with what the upcoming change is going to be for many families and and those of us who even don't necessarily have children. Um, It's back to school season. And that means, you know, vacations are over, schedules are changing. Um, And I've always found that dogs tend to have a reaction to changes in our schedule. And I I know in my my brief time with the Humane Society, uh, uh, working as a, a dog walker and on the board of directors and stuff, there was talk about the change in season. So... Why do you think, um, or why do dogs have any kind of significant change, or what change do they experience when we change? As members of the family, so to speak, whenever there's an upheaval in the schedule, we're all affected by that, even if it's something positive, even if it's something that we like. So remember, the dogs have gotten used to sort of your summer schedule, and sometimes we're not even aware that that there's a change because we are working as normally, but especially in a family where there's children, there are school schedules, people are around. And one of the most common ones is the difficulty in separation where people have been there consistently and suddenly they're not. Well, and that's not even just for a new dog. I, uh, you know, I, I am very fortunate in that I work from home and have my dogs with me here all day. But I even notice when, you know, I have a shift in my schedule of some kind, um, it's not necessarily the, you know, that they are new dogs and they've only ever been around when I'm around. Um, you know, it's if they've been. Oh, 
very much so, very much so. And they, and they certainly have different personalities, as you know, and, and, and we do as well. So some of us handle some of those changes better, some of us don't. I'm sure we all know somebody who finds certain times of year stressful, uh, even though they know it's going to be the same thing every time of year, they still find those changes stressful. And so you can see that with some dogs, they like routine. So even a dog that's comfortable in one routine, even if it's not a back-to-school, any change to that for some dogs can really throw them off. In terms of their emotional reaction to it, is it typically anxiety? Is it, you know, is it not just uh, maybe frustration or being upset, but an actual anxiety similar in a way to anxiety we would experience? Uh, And I speak, of course, of someone with an anxiety disorder. So uh, is it the same kind of thing? That's a very, it's a complicated question, isn't it? The reality is that their brain chemistry is very similar to humans. So we do see very similar types of mental disorders in dogs, including the whole spectrum of anxiety and responses. So therefore, certainly that change in schedule, especially if it's a newer dog, like you said, where you have an older dog or one that perhaps is more acclimatized to this sort of a shift, they may be able to handle that a bit better. But for some families, the thinking is, let's get a puppy in the spring or the summer when the kids are going to be around and we'll have time to spend with them. And the logic makes sense on some level that you're going to be there to help them through those first stages. But the downside of that is all this dog has known is having people around on a fairly steady basis. And so that sudden shift can absolutely lead to an exacerbation of anxiety issues or behaviors. And the, the, one of the difficulties that we have is that sometimes, just like children, acting out or inappropriate behavior is more of a result of anxiety and stress than it is of being naughty. And it's hard sometimes to recognize that difference. Well, and that's something that, uh, you know, in some of the promos for this episode we're recording right now in this interview, uh, I mentioned that you had helped with one of my dogs, JJ, who at times would seem she's just being a jerk. And I think sometimes, frankly, she is being a jerk. But there's also a very clear sort of level of anxiety in her. Um, And when there are significant changes or if for some reason she has decided that something is unsettling, Getting her past that, it, it's very much like I was as a toddler with anxiety or as a young person with anxiety. Of It's insurmountable uh, to see the difference. And I think a, a great example of that is our, our hallway, which goes from sort of rough uh, uh, wood paneling to uh, tile into the kitchen. And as uh, you would have seen, she bolts through there. And it's because she feels anxious getting across. So the solution was to put some carpeting down. And now she's fine. But... It's it's interesting for me, and I think maybe that personal aspect of it, and I probably inappropriately anthropomorphize, uh, particularly with her, uh, but recognizing that the anxiety does play such a significant role uh, was very, I don't want to say liberating, but it kind of opened options up for how to handle it. Well, I think that does so for a few reasons, uh, and it's hard because... The reality is, as much as we try to be objective, is that we tend to personalize behavior. So we do the same thing when a child acts out, when they, when that child says, I hate you. The, it's hard for a parent to recognize at that moment, of course, the kid doesn't hate them. But in that moment, that child's angry and they're acting out. And sometimes with dogs, when they display some of those stress behaviors, especially where they've always been seemingly fine or they've handled situations, uh, very often it's difficult not to personalize, not to feel that, well, clearly they're doing this for some reason of vengeance or they're angry at me. They want to get back at me. He's angry that I left. So that's where especially being able to step back, like you said, to recognize that perhaps this actually has nothing to do with me. That's really kind of freeing, isn't it? To suddenly think, wow, maybe I'm actually not the most important thing in the entire world right now. So it's really nice. It really lets you sort of step back for a minute to go, oh, this is about you, not me. How can I help you? And sometimes that's one of the best things that we can do is to distance slightly, to be able to recognize this isn't a personal assault or an attack or a snub on our training or anything else. This is a kid who's having a hard time with that adjustment. I feel like that's a lesson we need to send south of the border right now. Um, there is a large child having a very difficult time with an adjustment. Um, 
Exactly. Uh, we won't get into that because you and I are friends on Facebook, and I'm pretty sure we can all just assume we have the same views. Um, so what uh, I, I would be interested in talking about next is the concept of uh, crating. This is something that I, I now from the time I was a child, I was taught the dogs sleep in crates the same way a baby would sleep in a crib or a toddler maybe in a playpen. Um, and it's at their safe space and they like it. Let me maybe let's sort of start at the beginning of the crating conversation. Is crating cruel? This is one of the ones I think that trainers, even, even those who differ in all their methodology will agree on almost across the board. Um, it's, it's really, that's a very difficult one when people say that where I, you know, I don't want to crate or we actually have, it's funny, we've got a student in one of our classes right now who's struggling with a housebreaking issue. Uh, and yet she says, well, I don't believe in crating. The logic of that completely escapes me. Uh, it's the exact same thing as saying I don't believe in a crib or a baby game. The idea of the crate is not that dungeon, it's not that sort of punishment room, it's giving the child a bedroom. And the really nice thing that you can do with dogs, that my understanding is you can't do with children, um, is you can't really crate kids as easily, but it does give you a portable bedroom for the dog. And that can provide for anxious dogs, it can provide that sense of stability, and sometimes that's maybe what you were referring to, even with your own dog, with JJ, where... When there are issues, she has that one touchstone. It's that one stable touchstone. She knows what it is. It's a comfort spot for her. And that's what that crate really does provide. It provides that little bit that bedroom area. Um, so the idea I would suggest to you and counter to that, I would say, it, it, to me, it's cruel not to crate. I think for people who don't want to crate, especially with a younger dog, but even older ones, I think you're really rolling the dice with their safety because of some peculiarity or ego or issue that you may have personally. And as a parent, your responsibility is to keep the kids safe. And there are certain individuals and or organizations who claim that um, crating is for our convenience and they paint the picture of the dog being in the crate for 10 to 20 hours a day. Um, so... Maybe we can talk a little bit about, uh, you know, we, we know that it's a safe place. It's a place that the dogs can quickly come to enjoy. Um, how does a crate help in relieving anxiety? Because I think that might be, uh, like if you're maybe on the fence about it, that's the trade-off is, you know, you, yes, you maybe don't like the idea, but it's going to relieve that anxiety of you need to leave and they're upset or, uh, you know, another case example would be, you know, there's a thunderstorm or fireworks um, and they've got a safe place. So um, what about it or how do we sort of quantify that in terms of the anxiety well, relief? One of the things I often say when we start chatting with a client about the idea of crating is, again, it's sort of that emphasis. We talk about that time one because you're right. It, it tends to get... Uh, hyperbole very quickly. We tend to devolve into they're going to be in there forever. So when we're talking about anxiety specifically, one of the great things about providing the crate is it lets me begin to more easily block out some of those outside triggers. In the case of thunderstorms or fireworks, uh, simply having a crate that I can perhaps cover a bit allows me to muffle it. One of the really great little cheap finds that we found uh, were you can find at some of the big box home hardware stores, they sell moving blankets, such as U-Hauls use. They're great. They were about $25 or so, so they're not a lot of money. And they're great blankets for over a crate where they tend to be a bit thicker and they really insulate well. So that's one area where that can really help anxiety. It's simply by reducing stimuli. And if you think about kids, and we often relate certainly to certain disorders with kids where they can be hypersensitive to some stimuli, light or sound. And so that's one way that a crate can really serve to just give them a quiet, safe spot where they can begin to decompress as well. Um, I would suggest the other one as well with that crate when you talk about anxiety or issues. And one of my concerns is um, I often say to my own clients, is that you don't know what's going on when you're not home in the outside world. And I've had cases repeatedly throughout my practice, throughout my career, where we've had a dog who was fine in the home and all of a sudden they're not. 
And sometimes it's as simple as there was construction outside that the people weren't aware of, or something happened. And in one case, what we did have was a little schnauzer, and that schnauzer was developing some some aggression issues towards kids. And the owner was surprised, and we couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And she came home early from work one day and found the neighborhood children were tapping on the glass to try to say hi to him at the back door. And she didn't know that, and he was terrified. So that's an example of if that had that dog been crated in a safe spot in the home, the issue would have been moot. I never would have been there. Yeah, and that's, I think, certainly something we're learning these days is the impact fear can have on our behavior in ways that we may not expect. Uh, and that applies across the animal kingdom, I think. Um, and I wanted to talk a bit about also um, two, more, two more points about sort of the back to basics, back to school concept. Um, one is, I think, straightforward. And the other one I know you can probably talk about for days. So we'll start with the simple one and that's obedience school. Uh, I overheard a conversation about this recently and it was quite interesting, uh, because one side is saying, well, I know how to teach my dog, how to sit, how to heal, how to lay down. And I, there's no doubt in my mind that this individual could teach that. Those are relatively basic behaviors to train with treats. Um, and the other person was saying, it's not just about that. It's about socializing and about getting them exposed to all kinds of different things. Um, but there was this odd tension about that. Um, so I, I guess sort of a two-parter here is one, what do you see as the benefits to the dog and the owner uh, of going to puppy school or basic obedience, regardless of age? And how do we find a good trainer or a good program? That's sort of, I know that's maybe a larger exactly. question. Exactly. Oh, yeah. No, we could spend a couple of hours on this. I hope we've got time. Uh, we'll be done in, what, September or so, I think, on this one? All right. Yeah, yeah. So for the, cl <laughs> for the class one, why why go to a class? Uh, and, again, exactly that. And many people, well, I've trained my other dog. I can train this one. So there's a, there's a number of reasons to go back and do a class. One of the great ones, especially if we relate back to our back-to-school feature, and I think I've done an article on this in the past, is back-to-school should be back-to-school for everybody in the family. So bringing the dog back to class, especially if you have an older dog, a dog that's over the age of four or five, six years old, or even a senior, a 10-year-old, bringing them back into class is a wonderful way to provide some really good enrichment in their lives. If you think about that, how often... Do we educate our children up until they're about 13? And then we say, well, that's it. You're not going to have to learn anything ever again. And yet with our dogs, we really stop teaching them new things. And many people now, as I like to say, I have bulldogs, so I don't often refer to my dogs as real dogs. But many foolish people out there, sort of your household, <laughs> you have real dogs. So yeah. you have these smart, yeah. talented, athletic, working dogs. Bless your heart. I have no idea what you people are thinking. But if you've decided to run out and get one either. of these smart, talented working dogs, then one of the things you really owe it to them is to provide that sort of mental stimulation of learning things, and they can learn their entire lives. So that's one of the really good reasons to go to a class. And we say that to people sometimes. It's not an indictment of what you know. We're not criticizing your skills. Rather, it's a way for you and those skills that you have to really now magnify the impact and to have a great time with your dog. I would say one of the other issues as well that we often add uh, where people will say, well, I know how to teach him sit or down or stand or I've done this. Um, we often say it's not the point is I'm not that social, so I'm not going to invite 12 strangers and dogs over to my house every week. So it gives you a bunch of bait people. And so what we mean by that is you get distractions. <laughs> that the real, the real world for your dog, it's lovely if they can do things in the living room, but in the real world, in a city, some of you have a dog in Toronto, some of you have a dog in Vancouver, some have a dog who may want to go to a village fair once in a while. Those dogs, we do want to teach them just because you're out in public and there are people and dogs that the owner still exists. And that's one of the best benefits of a training group class to work in that environment. Yeah, and then the question, of course, becomes how do we pick that environment? Uh, and that's something that, um, you know, I, I am, I, I don't, I, I just get told which one to pick, um, thanks to <laughs> certain individuals in my family. Uh, but how, what, what should people be looking for? I mean, when they do say, okay, 
I'm going to go back to obedience or I'm going to start this or I want to try agility or I want to do whatever. What's the best way to sort of decide this is the, the right class for well, me there, and there's my dog? A few, there's a few ways to answer that. And one of the, the very first things I tell people is go sit in on a class, any reputable school, any training school. If you call them and you say, we're thinking about coming in, would it be possible to sit in on a class to see how you work? Um, any school will allow you to do that. If they don't, then that's a red flag in and of itself that they're not going to permit me to actually see how they run a class. I think that there's also a very large part, and part of this is having just finally, finally, after I'm sure a sustained bout of you know uh, trying to distract myself desperately, finished off a master's degree in education doing this. When we look at teaching for children and dogs, I think one of the most important criteria that you want to look for once you sit down in that class is does it look like it's fun please don't feel that you need to be a dog expert and it's very difficult because i do think that we sort of have a schism in the pet world where dog people tend to separate people out into pet people and dog people and sometimes those people who have pets feel that they don't know as much they're not qualified to make choices for the dog versus somebody who's had dogs all their life. So I think the most important thing to say to that pet owner is, first of all, you're the parent. Trust your, I always say, trust your mommy, your daddy gut. Uh, trust your instincts. Go sit in on the class. Does it look like it's enjoyable? Is How is the teacher talking, not just to the dogs, how are they talking to the students? Are you comfortable with how they're handling the students? And do they seem to actually like the dogs? Are they concerned about the dog's behavior? Are they helping the dogs? So I think that's a very large part of it. And obviously, one of the easy checkoffs for me as an instructor or a teacher is we always say, take a look at the equipment. If the school is more focused on just punishing them for what they're doing wrong, rather than rewarding what they're doing right, that's probably not going to be the best environment for need, for either a child or a dog. And I wouldn't have either in there. Excellent. And my last question, this is, this is an easy one for you. Um, uh, are dogs wolves? Um, uh, and I'm approaching this in the concept of uh, alpha dogs and um I, I don't even know how to phrase the question. You know what I'm getting at, though, so I'm going to just step back and let you talk about this for a minute. Once again, exactly. So we're going to fill another 45 minutes here. Okay. So very, very, very quickly. Um, dogs are no more wolves than than your your uh, the equestrian rider, that top rider at the Olympics, is riding some sort of a prehistoric mastodon sort of combination. Uh, dogs and wolves branched off a very long time ago. What we do know from a social perspective, and this is a very important one, and even with wolves, is that they really don't. There's no evidence to support that there's something like a dominance hierarchy in a home or in a normal family environment. The phrase dominance, and in fact, I just did a bit of writing on this as well, um, it's interesting because the phrase dominant, it, what's important to understand about that, that terminology is number one, um, it's not a, a trait. It's not a genetic characteristic. It's simply something that might occur during an interaction. So perhaps in one interaction, I might push you out of the way because I really, really want tickets to that Justin Bieber concert. So I might shove you, and that might make me dominant at that moment over you. But then we might come to a vegan hot dog stand and you might push me out of the way, which would then make you dominant over me. I don't think I would have you to push probably very hard. would not. However, I did have a joke for you, by the <laughs> way, about the vegans, which is why did the oh. vegan patty cross the road to prove that it wasn't chicken? I digress. The point, uh... the point being, this, um, is that we don't look at that relationship. We don't want to frame the relationship with our dogs as an adversarial one or one in which there needs to be a winner or a loser. And that's the problem with this concept of dominance. And many clients that I see, and I feel badly for, because they almost feel backed into a corner, that they have to react adversarially because, heaven forbid, the child should win, the dog should win. And so the most important mm -hmm. thing to remember is, like I say to many of my uh, our students, you're basically dealing with an 18-month-old furball 
that has come from some other planet. They don't speak English. They're impulsive as can be. They want everything right now, and they overreact to any perceived threat. But that's all. They're really not that deep. And I say that. I know you love them dearly. They're just not that deep. Dogs want to get up on a couch for the exact same reason that you do, because it's comfy. So they do silly things. They pull out a door in front of you, not because they absolutely think that if they can get out the door ahead of you, they will then control the family finances and they're totally going to start that cat farm that they wanted. They don't. They pull out Mm -hmm. to get ahead of you because you're slow and they're fun and it's fast. I have to get out there quickly and we have to see what's there. So what I would often say the most important thing, takeaway sort of from this, this sort of portion is the idea of don't overthink things. You're going to make yourself crazy. And there are many other ways to make yourself crazy. Don't do it on this one. Just look at the dog individually with each situation and trust yourself a bit. Even if you don't know a lot about dogs, you're going to make your way through. Children don't come with instruction manuals. Puppies don't always. You have a bit of an advantage. There are some teachers. So you'll make your way through. But don't worry about such a status thing as alpha or beta. They're not in a fraternity or sorority. They don't get it. So no worries. Excellent. Um, And I know that's a a frustrating one for trainers uh, of high regard all over the place, uh, thanks to certain individuals with television cameras. Um, Now, we did get some good questions. um, And surprise, surprise, most of them have to do with barking and aggression. Um, Although I, I want to start with one that I think maybe plays into the, the back-to-school concept and will help sort of in talking about everything else. And that's what's the difference between negative reinforcements and punishments? And is there a legitimate place for either in dog training? Okay, nice I guess, okay we are going back to school. All right. Yeah. The expression of, of, of negative reinforcement, uh, you're getting back into that psychology class that everybody had to take in university and most of us failed the first couple of times around. So basically, first of all, somebody, and I'm going to flip this a little bit, I'm going to go back into the positive reinforcement. Someone who identifies himself as a positive reinforcement trainer, if somebody says that's all they are, so somebody might say, I am strictly a positive trainer, I'm strictly a positive reinforcement. That's no more possible than them being a leprechaun or a unicorn. So it's, it's simply not physically possible. So when somebody identifies themselves as a positive trainer, what that means is they're going to use positive reinforcement. So all that means in easy English, they're simply going to give the dog something the dog likes in order to try and increase the behavior that the owner likes. That's all. That's what positive mm-hmm. reinforcement means. So the negative When we talk about a negative punishment, sort of as we phrased it, that is exactly what positive trainers use. So that's the corollary. So when the dog is doing something we don't like, we use what's called negative punishment, meaning we just simply take something away or we remove a privilege, sort of like a timeout. And that's the basic premise of positive training. The idea, again, is this is not, like I say to my clients very often, this is not unicorns and rainbows that the reality is, yes, there are times in our lives with ourselves, with our friends, with our children, with our dogs, probably with our fish, depending on if he's taking on that little scuba diver too often, that we are going to want to suppress a behavior, that there are behaviors that are simply not permissible. And that's when we are going to use some type of a punishment. The concept of a punishment is not in and of itself a cruel and inhumane thing to do. All it simply means, a punisher, is just something that suppresses or makes a behavior less likely. So for a dog, for example, you could simply make the argument that putting a leash on a dog is a punishment because you're simply not permitting the dog to engage in something he wants. Now, what's the defining line? Because I very much define myself as a positive trainer or sort of the terminology that's often used now is a force-free trainer. And that may be better, maybe a bit more accurate. So where the punishment crosses that line or how can you define what can I use, what's ethical? The rule with punishment or interrupting is I want it to be something that's icky enough that the dog might stop the behavior, but you can never get a fear 
or a pain response. And so that's that dividing line. So if you think about, remember we spoke a few minutes ago about going in and doing training classes. And we said, if somebody's focusing more on simply correcting them for doing the bad behavior than rewarding the good one. So when we talk about that, if you get a mental picture in your head, what might that look like for somebody listening of a person correcting a dog, let's say, for pulling on a leash? And the picture many of us get is somebody perhaps yanking the leash sharply back, or perhaps they use a corrective collar. That's where we get into now, if you look back at those principles, we have a pain principle, or we may have a fear principle. And so that's where those methods, that's why we don't use those types of methods anymore, because of the risk of fallout. So there is a place for a punishment to suppress a behavior, like a timeout, if a dog is being inappropriate, but it has to be like children. It may never be done emotionally, and it has to be done with control so that we aren't teaching the animal to be afraid of us, but only to interrupt the behavior. And it's a very, very fine line. And, you know, my exposure to it um, is very limited. I'll be honest about that. But there is someone in my neighborhood who purports to be a dog trainer. And um, once or twice, and I've commented on this, and it's very frustrating because there's nothing to be done about it. Um, but you'll have a dog who's barking and you'll hear bark, cry, cry, nothing. And then a little later, he'll bark, cry, cry, nothing. And you see the dog and they've got the big black box on their collar. And you know, it's a dog who is being uh, shocked every time he barks. And it's not solving a problem. It's scaring the dog into not barking. Um, and to me, it's just, you know, you, you can hear pain and fear very, very clearly. This is not a Yelp, you stepped on my toe or, um, gee, there was a scary sound over there. Like it's, I am in pain and I don't know why. So it's very upsetting, I think, too, to see it that way. And unfortunately, I think that's the far end, but there's quite frequently sort of that somewhere a little past or a little before that. And that's what you're talking about, sort of trying to find that line. And I think those are very good lessons. Yeah, I think uh, we have to be very careful. Uh, never do it emotionally. Uh, again, I mean, yeah, we could, we could, we could spend uh, probably three to four podcasts on this subject. One of the dangers of using what's termed as a positive punishment. So when you ask me about a punishment, what does that mean? What is a positive punishment? So remember I said that a positive reinforcement, that's when we add something that the dog wants to increase the behavior. In a positive punishment, it means we're adding something that the dog doesn't want to try and stop the behavior. And so that's your shock caller that you were referring to. When the dog barks, something bad is added or it happens to him that shock in order to suppress the behavior. The very, very dangerous risk, and I go into homes where I end up trying to have to fix this, it's an expression that I call, that I've, uh, I've coined, that I term as opportunistic aggression. Because the problem is the risk of fallout far outweighs the benefit of interrupting the behavior at that moment. And that's the same reason why we don't use a correction for aggressive behavior around children or on the street towards the dogs or strangers. As much as it seems very knee-jerk to us, we want the dog is naughty, he barks, we should correct that. The danger that you run, when you add a correction to that, it's called a sort of a, an SRO, a stimulus and a response and an outcome. The problem is that the dog very often the response, the behavior that caused the behavior, that caused the the punishment to occur, doesn't doesn't form in the animal's mind as the reason. So what happens? The behavior drops right out, and now all I end up with is a dog. When he sees children, he gets hurt, and now he hates children even more. And that's the danger of using mm -hmm. a correction. And when we talk about that opportunistic aggression. The other option you can get, if somebody is certainly strong enough or harsh enough, yes, they can cause enough pain or use a threat of pain that the animal doesn't respond. The problem is they've never taught the animal to change their emotional connection to that trigger. And so what the animal learns is to wait for that window, that opportunity, when they may be able to quickly react to that trigger before they get punished. And I often say the exact analogy for, for people, if I were sitting in the room, if I had a gun, 
And I said to you all in the room, don't move. Everybody needs to sit in their chair. No one gets up. I could put the gun away. I could put it in my pocket. And you probably wouldn't get up. That doesn't mean I've changed your attitude or your perception about the situation. You're only waiting for a window to be able to execute the behavior that you want to do. And that's a similar idea with using a punishment. I feel that the use of execute the behavior might have been a little too apt in that scenario. but Exactly. Um, now I digress. Um, well, and it's it's interesting talking about that too. Sorry, Pigeon is now, I don't know, I can't see him now. He was doing something under my chair and I saw cords move. Now I can't find him. It's like a friggin' shark movie with this dog sometimes. Um, he is the very smart, we now know to be um, mostly Boston Terrier and Chihuahua mix. And uh, it's it's fascinating because I, I, Kate taught me how to do this and she taught him how to do it. And I've started doing it with JJ. And JJ used to be very reactive, especially leash reactive. So she'd see dogs across the street um, and start barking and lunging. And of course, as you know, like a shepherd lab hound mix, she's rather large and looks to many people like a shepherd type dog. Uh, but what Pigeon does now is he sees a dog across the street and he looks at that dog and then turns and looks at Kate and says, I saw the dog. I found him. Uh, I get my treat now. And that's the connection she's taught him is that seeing another dog is a good thing because you get something good. Whereas what my natural instinct with JJ had been is you see another dog. I'm going to prevent you from doing what you want to do. And as I've started get, doing the same thing, and I'm not as quick, I, I don't have that trainer speed yet. Um, but with JJ, it's just, I'm starting to notice that now. She sees something and rather than immediately maybe lunge or get her hackles up, she sort of pauses and starts to look at, it's like that thought is there, that is this the thing? Is this it? So it's very interesting to see how that connection does get made when we're using this kind of training. Yeah, very, very, very much so. There's a couple of things that you're really hitting on in there. Um, number one, and one of the biggest ones, is most people aren't trainers, and most trainers aren't perfect. So the reality is you're going to screw this up when you're training, as much as you're trying to be bang on. Yeah. I'm going to screw it up. You'll screw it up. We all make mistakes. The difference is when you make a mistake doing something positive, you don't run the risk of damaging the relationship with the dog. And so that's why even with JJ, and I, my guess is you're probably a little bit more skilled than you'll give yourself credit for. But even with JJ, I think that's a great example for perhaps some of your listeners who may feel that they're not the training expert. For yourself, where you said, well, I don't necessarily entirely know what I'm doing, but I'm going to try and do this. I kind of get this feeding her when she sees the dogs. And I'm sure your timing may have been off here or there, but isn't it great how she worked through that and yet you're still able to make that change even without necessarily having mm -hmm. a PhD in animal behavior. So I think that that's one that's a really important concept that I would really encourage some of those listeners or our, our audience to think about is don't necessarily devalue your skills. There's, there's always value in trying. Um, and you'll never make something worse in terms of trying to use positive work with them. The other big key that you've also touched on as well, and it's one of the very top line in my consult notes that I hand out to people, is I can't do the word don't. That's sort of my joke. I always say don't say don't. So in other words, mm -hmm. it's much clearer to the dog when you tell them what to do. That's really helpful if you think about that, right? So in other words, if I said to you, what would you like JJ to do when she's barking at the dog? In the beginning, you might have said, well, I don't want her to bark at them. But that's too vague. You might also have said, I don't want her to play a ukulele. I don't want her to stand on mm -hmm. one foot. I don't want her to bite me in the shoe. I don't want her to drive a stick shift. That's too vague. There's too many things out there. It's far easier for your dog and for you as well to simply say, wait, what do I want her to do? Well, I'd like her to maybe look at me because all of a sudden you say, oh, I know how to make that happen. Or you might say, I'd like her to sit. So that sort of thing. So that's, I think, one of the two key points that you just touched on, even in your example, is that the positive training, even if you make some mistakes along the way, that the dog stays engaged with you because they're enjoying it. And secondarily, uh, that you've given them clarity that by showing them what to do instead of focusing on the don'ts makes it much easier on the toddler. Excellent. And um, there's one that kind of gets touched on a couple of times. Um, 
in different ways. And I'm going to sum them up sort of. Both of them have to do with aggression. Um, One is uh, aggression from a dog when the owner is hugging anyone. And the other one uh, had a fair bit more information, but comes back to um, uh, being it's uh, Great Pyrenees uh, in this case. Uh, So we've got a little terrier and a Great Pyrenees. And this one is terrifying and aggressive in our yard when we acknowledge what he's barking at or greet and accept guests he's not extremely well acquainted with. Uh, He's nipped and jumped people a few times. Um, So the question in both of these cases is how do we change the behavior? And I read it very much as a aggression in the home to outsiders, but outside of the home, that aggression isn't there. Okay. Um, Okay. I'm just trying to think a little bit. Uh, So in the first case, we were talking about the hugging. And in the second case, it sounds like, so the dog is barking in the yard or at things. And then they've sometimes snapped or outside the hole at, at the family as well. Um, okay. Sorry about no, that. Yeah. My, again, my love, like, my technology yeah. clarify my second one. <laughs> it's like a game show. This is fun. Um, yeah. So the the first one's little terrier. Uh, right. Hugging a guy. Yep. Becomes aggressive. What's the second one? Yeah. Second one. Uh, Great Pyrenees. Adults. Um, plays well with dogs and other people, both in off leash parks at the no kennel facility, uh, and is generally easygoing and seeks affection from strangers. But when in the yard, um, he will bark at people, um, and even when the owner says they they have acknowledged and welcomed and greeted the individuals coming in, he'll still show that Easy. sign of okay. aggression. All right, let me start. I'll start with the hugging Easy. people right. first. So one of the, the important things that, that you want the listeners to, uh, to recognize is, and again, this is why you do have an expert such as myself to point these things out, um, they're primates. So they may not have realized that, so they have thumbs. And because we're primates and because we have these thumbs, we love to use them and show off. And so the things that we do that we think are affectionate and they're great, it's not always the things that dogs might do. And so one of those really big splits that we have by being primates is we tend to grab. We love those thumbs. So we hold people. We grab people. We snuggle them close. And that's affection for us. But it is important to understand that's not an affectionate behavior for a dog. And this is not to say that a dog can't learn across species, right? We both learn what's affection and we can adjust. But for many normal dogs, hugging is very stressful. So when somebody goes to hug an owner or the owner hugs or the parents hug, many times you often see dogs may bark or they may jump up or they may become aggressive simply because it looks more like mommy and daddy are fighting than it does like they actually like each other. Because that idea, if you think about with dogs, dogs don't hug. And when dogs do hug, if you really think about that scenario, if you have one dog in a park grabbing or holding or pinning another one down, that is rarely an affectionate moment, if you think about Mm -hmm. that. That looks more like aggression, doesn't it, to us? So that's a really, as I say, real common, but it's certainly not uncommon. And that's a pretty easy one to work on with the dog. A lot of times we do with something simply called a treat party, uh, where we simply will toss some treats every time somebody hugs. And so, in other words, somebody might come over and hug, and then we just simply toss a couple of treats every single time to start to just reset the dog's emotional connection to the behavior. Um, but that's a fairly normal reaction at first for many dogs. Like I said, it is certainly possible. Some dogs will learn that hugging is affectionate, and they might even allow you to hug them. But it doesn't make the ones who don't like it the lemons. That makes them normal. And that's important to remember. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the dog. And that same idea of somebody hugging the owner, it is stressful. So that's one way we want to just try to help them, to teach them it's okay, I'm not being attacked, we're not fighting. Here, have treats. And that's where you often see that little barking or the the anxiety. In the second question, I think what what the reader, what the uh, the person who asked the question is talking about is a really risky setup thing called barrier frustration. And so when we talk about barrier frustration, what that means is we've got a dog who's in a situation where they can look out a window or they're looking out a fence where they're able to see other people or dogs 
And the problem is they may start to learn to bark at those people or dogs outside the fence. And what happens once they bark at them? What do those people do? They leave. And so now the risk is we are now starting to teach our dog how to make scary things go away. And the way we are teaching them to do that is by using aggression, by being aggressive in your display. The more aggressive you sound, the people leave. And that's a very dangerous connection in particular for the breed that you've described, which is generally bred as a bit of a, a watchdog. They're, we call them livestock guarding mm-hmm. dogs. So I certainly don't want that dog in particular to learn that aggression is one way to make scary people leave. Now, the fact that he's good, that particular dog is maybe very social outside the confines of the yard, which is great. And the reason that you'll sometimes see that is, again, because you don't have those same barriers. They're off the leash or even on the leash on the street, but that's a different scenario where it's always been positive. With the yard, what they've learned is simply there's something frightening. I'm going to bark at it, and it's going to leave. There's no positive association. That's a very important one to work on. Um, Again, because as much as many people say I'd like my dog to be a watchdog, in the real world, very, very few of us are ever going to have a scenario where somebody's coming in the home that we don't want. The vast majority of people are invited. And the risk is I don't expect the dog to try and tell the difference between who's good and who's bad. So I want to try to make everybody positive. So in the second case, we would do a lot of work with that dog. We're using food outside or having some friends walk by and toss some treats over the fence for him to try and make him happy about them or bringing the dog out and playing in the yard with him away from the fence line so he starts to associate the yard with play or training instead of guarding. And unfortunately, the other side of that answer is that they are going to have to manage it better, which means the dog can't be out there unsupervised for a little while because he can't rehearse what they don't want if they're not training. But that is certainly something that they can work with, and it sounds like he's a great dog overall. So there's no reason to think they can't improve that. Excellent. And that actually, um, and that's, that's the sound of all the dogs being excited because something just happened in my house. Um, and we just learned to manage it. And we talk over the sound of them all running around. Exactly. Like idiots. Um, <laughs> exactly. I used to try and edit that out. Now, no, that's, that's just that's part right. of the show now. Um, that actually is very similar to a question we had from someone else saying that um, their dog barks at anything that walks by their house, mailman, squirrel, a dog being walked, or even just movement in a tree. And this happens when they're sitting in the living room, um, you know, and presence, um, but they have no idea what happens when they're not home. Uh, they, you know, maybe it does happen, maybe it doesn't. Is it the same situation, just with a different response from the dog? It is, and it, it is, and it isn't. Yes, exactly. There, but it's very, very similar, isn't it? Because now you start to recognize that, and now we go back into our discussion a little while ago about why do we crate, and that's one of the reasons that we do crate, so that the dog's not rehearsing something that I don't want. In general, the alarm barking, that's a great characteristic. We have two of them that do it here, and I can tell you there is nothing that's more enjoyable than completely relaxing and watching television and suddenly having your blood pressure spike to about 400 over 300 (laughs) because some idiot on the couch has suddenly jumped up and started barking. So I absolutely understand the the caller or the questioner's uh, frustration with the issue, especially when we don't know what it is. So all of a sudden, for no reason, Muffin starts losing her mind. With alarm barking, with that sort of a behavior in the home, the one of the very first things we will tell a client to do with them, when you're relaxing in the home or when you're home with them, let's start to restrict that dog a little bit more. So in other words, we might do things like baby gate across the kitchen so that they can't leave the kitchen area if we're in there. Or if we're going to watch TV, we might even throw the leash on the back of a harness and tie them to the couch with us so they have to stay with us. The reason that we often do that with alarm barkers is because it's a twofold issue. Part of the problem is that sudden startle bark. But the other part of it that exacerbates it is the running around the house. Because as I'm sure you know, once they start running and the adrenaline starts going and they just start spiraling up, 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 and it becomes that much harder to try to interrupt and calm everything down, that means they're also going to be much edgier during the night. So that means they're going to keep going off very often. They will go off again. 
So when we talk about that sort of an issue of barking at noises or perceived sounds or whatever that might be outdoors or indoors, um, that's a scenario where we do a lot more of a combination. First, and you see that very often too, in apartment or condo dogs, that's one of the challenges. So where we do with that is we go back into our management toolbox. So like I said before, the dog goes back to being a little more restricted in the home so that they can't get to that window or they can't get to that area where they can hear other people. In a condo or an apartment, we often recommend baby gate that hallway to the door. Many of them do have that sort of long hallway leading to the, the door itself, the outdoor so we often recommend blocking that off so the dog cannot go up to listen for that axe murderer of a neighbor who's living next to you. And then the second case is we want to go back to using those treat tosses. So then what we want to start yeah. to do is whenever we hear something quickly or in the case of many dogs, what the owners have to watch for is those sudden ears popping up or the dog's head pops up, you can see that they've heard something. At that moment, that's when they want to start trying to do some treat tossing to redirect the dog so he doesn't start to go off. That will work, but one of the most effective things is more the management side so that the dog isn't rehearsing all that running around, and it lets the owner interrupt them a bit more quickly to go knock it off, come sit on the couch and watch TV. Excellent. And the final question is, if you had one thing to tell all of the dog owners of Canada and the world, um, as we sort of creep into September and we have these expected schedule change or schedule changes, um, what would it be? What, what's the one thing you think that people need to hear about that furry family member? Specific to our schedule changing to that sort of fall changeover with school. Yeah, or if you have something like in your pocket that's not quite related to that, we'll take you that You know, too. I think, and it's funny, I think probably is an overall picture. Um, I think one of the most important sentiments that I often that I often say is love them for who they are, um, not who you want them to be. That there are aspects of our personality, mm. let's face it, you know, we can't change DNA. And I'm sure, you know, you might love your spouse or your or your uh, best friend, but there are things they do that drive you nuts and you love them anyway. So it is important to remember when we do get frustrated with the dogs, because we will, we absolutely will. That's their job in life is to make us crazy. And then they, they run back and they do something adorable and now we love them. So I think one of the biggest messages I would give people is, again, be realistic. Just because your dog may not be able to go visit strangers, maybe they don't like other people, doesn't make them any less of a great dog. There are things that your dog does that other people would like, and it's hard. So don't, don't disparage what they're not. Love them for what they are. That would probably be one of my biggest messages. To learn more about Joan's work or get in touch with her, visit the Fangs But No Fangs website at k9shrink.ca. Thanks all for joining me this week, and please do remember to subscribe on your smartphone. Links are available to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn in this week's show notes at thefurbears.com. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.